This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about parties in American democracy, and in particular, efforts, historical and contemporary, to break out of the partisan divisions that often stymie our democracy. This is not uh, an entirely new phenomenon, but I think everyone looking at American democracy today would recognize uh, that the two-party system is creating, uh, in many cases, a lack of choice and is certainly making it difficult to initiate many of the reforms that our system needs, both structurally and in terms of policy. We're joined by the two people who I think are doing more around the country to raise awareness around these issues and to try to fix these issues. Uh, They are political reformers with a great deal of experience, and uh, they are leading a new initiative called the Forward Party, and we're going to talk about that as well. Uh, Our two guests are uh, Governor Christine Todd Whitman, who was the 50th governor of New Jersey, Uh, I remember very well growing up in New York when she became governor of New Jersey and how jealous I was. They had such a good governor. Uh, We didn't have as good a governor in New York, but that's another story. Uh, She also was the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency uh, during the administration of George W. Bush. And she has played many other roles, written books about politics, and has been one of the leading advocates of trying to reform the Republican Party and now trying to move away from the structure of the Republican Party, at least as it is today. And we're very uh, fortunate to have her with us. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, Our other guest, our equally incredible and awesome guest is uh, Andrew Yang. Uh, I'm sure all of our listeners know Andrew Yang as well. He's an entrepreneur, author, philanthropist, nonprofit leader. He was a candidate for presidency and outlasted many other uh, seasoned politicians uh, and played a really important role in shaping the debate. I think, in the last presidential election. He also ran for mayor of New York, which I think is probably the most difficult job in the world. I think president was an easier job, don't you think? Oh, well, it was certainly a more fun campaign, so (laughs) that's any measure. (laughs) Well, we're delighted, uh, Andrew, to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. And, of course, we have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. And you're coming to us from Berlin today, Zachary, right? I am, yes. This is a transatlantic poem. Do you you want to say a little bit about what you're doing in Berlin before we hear the poem? Sure. Well, I am an intern uh, in the uh, Bundestag or lower house of the parliament here uh, in the office of Isabel Karmatori, uh, who is a representative from the city of Mannheim. And how's your German? Uh, Sehr gut. Sehr gut. Okay. All right. So what's the title of your poem? The title of my poem is Four Questions. It's not Passover, Zachary. (laughs) That's three questions, I guess, right? (laughs) All right, go ahead, Zachary. If this is the moment when all our hopes must come true at the same time or none of them, let us ask the questions we have always been too afraid to ask. Could we ever see those purple mountain majesties, or was the sky here always hazy and the waters in our rivers never clear? Did we ever have a chance to see a banner star-spangled and unspoiled, or had we already soiled the bed and forgotten what it demands to keep the promises of liberty pristine? Did that grand old flag ever fly in peace, or was everything quiet, just a lull in the same battle, a pause before an unceremonious return to arms? 
Was it ever morning in America or just a flash of light at the end of a tunnel, which seemed to get closer, but was always far away? No, we have touched the gilded ceilings of liberty and flown on the temperate wings of peace. We have seen each shining sea both at the same time, and we have seen many sunrises before. It is only dark now because we haven't bothered to turn on the lights. Hmm. Beautiful. Very thought-provoking. What, what's your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really, I think, about, about forcing ourselves to reflect on where we are as a country and asking the hard questions, uh, trying to find places where we have failed, but also recognizing that our values and the principles which our institutions are supposed to protect and do protect at their best are worth fighting for. And realizing that if we want to achieve those values and and, and to meet them, then we we also need to be involved and, and take part in, in our democratic institutions. That's a powerful message. Well said. Well, uh, Governor Whitman, your thoughts? Well, I think that was excellent. I really do appreciate it. It, uh, in a very eloquent way, laid out the challenge in front of us, but also gives hope. Right. I mean, shows that we can make a difference. We, right. we can take things back. We can be that, what we hope and all, always aspire to be. So yes. I think it was very important. I yeah. would love a copy when Thank you're you. <laughs> finished with it. Andrew? Turn on the light. <laughs> it would be a fine slogan for... Forward. <laughs> yes, yes, you should use it. Sure. Then we'll credit Zach. <laughs> uh, why, Andrew, uh, are you so uh, determined to break our party system? Why do you think the party system is not turning on the light right now? It's not turning on the light because it's not designed to and it doesn't have to. Uh, and that's what we have to change. Um, I ran for president. When I used to talk to young people like Zach, I would say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we've left you such a dysfunctional mess. I'm sorry that uh, the country you're inheriting is not what it should be. And the question is, how can we actually get it to a point where we're proud to leave it to the next generation? Because we're certainly very far from that now. Right. Governor Whitman, you're a lifelong Republican. Uh, your parents met uh, right. at, in the ni- at the 1932 Republican That's Convention. Yep. I have to confess, I teach about the 1932 Democratic Convention. Now I need to teach about now the Republican. Now you need to teach about the Republican. You've got to be even-handed here. <laughs> what brought you to this, a lifelong Republican now trying to change the party system? Well, watching the party that I knew turn into a cult, frankly, it's no longer a party. It, I watched it start to get more and more ingrained in and encumbered by social issues where the stances were very hard and fast and you had to believe a certain way in order to be a recognized Republican. And it's um, it was something that was just not the way I was brought up and it was not designed to solve problems. And mm. our country has a lot of them. We need to address them, but you're only going to address them if you're willing to work across the aisle. And the system right now is not set up to encourage that. In fact, it's set up to discourage it. So, so what changed? I mean, you've seen this in your lifetime. You're, if I might say, a primary document on this, right? You've lived through and experienced <laughs> I know I'm old, the part. But really, a primary document. You're, you're, okay. No, it's your wisdom and your insider <laughs> connections. 
Um, but but what changed? Because obviously, uh, I remember your campaign for governor of, of New Jersey. You you weren't saying that then because it wasn't the case then. So what's changed in in the two or three decades? Well, I think what really started the change was when Newt Gingrich divided the incoming freshman congressmen. It used to be that they all went through orientation together, both sides of the aisle, and he said, "No, we can't do that anymore. We got to mm. separate it." Mm. And that was the start of they don't even get to know each other. Hmm. They don't spend any time together. They don't all know the, their names of their fellow Congress people. And that started the ability that the parties then getting stronger and stronger and a way that the redistricting then went uh, actually about 20 years ago, the Republicans got smart and they started working at the local level. They started electing local officials who would make those decisions when it came time to do redistricting because it's done at the state level. And they started to carve up the system so it benefited one party or the other. And the Democrats are doing the same thing. I mean, I'm not just blaming Republicans. Right, right, right. It's, it's happening on both sides. And it's, so it's set up to be a system whereby you don't worry about the general election. You mm. only worry about your primary because that's the only place you can lose. Mm. And so you have to worry about your base. And they, when you have... Primary turnouts of 10 to 12 percent, those are the most partisan people. And that's right. been the average over the years. Right. Uh, you have the most partisan people voting, and th those are your choices right. for the fall. Right. They come from the most extremes of the parties. Right. And I, I have to say, having lived in New York and living in Texas, I've seen exactly that for both parties. Mm -hmm. uh, the New York primary is entirely dominated by, by Democrats, right. so at least in New York City. And in Texas, it's, it's, it's the alternative universe. It's mm -hmm. the reverse of that. Andrew? Uh, Super grateful to be working with the, with the governor. For me, I ran for president because I feared that we're going through this profound economic transformation and our country was not meaningfully responding. Uh, and I realized that our system is not designed for good policy. Uh, it's designed now, unfortunately, for inflammation and antagonism and polarization. And those forces are getting stronger and stronger. Most people at this point are not excited about whoever they're voting for. They're just being conditioned to despise the other side so much that they'll say, well, you only find one of us acceptable. So now you have to vote for the acceptable person. And even who's acceptable is different depending upon <laughs> what side you're on. Uh, and in that environment, we're never going to solve for automation, AI, poverty, climate change, uh, homelessness, substance abuse, public education, you name it. There are more and more people around the country who are fed up and frustrated by the lack of progress on issues they care deeply about. And you have to hit, bring your head up and say, okay, why is it that we all feel so despondent about the direction of our politics? Why is it that Congress can have a 22% approval rating and incumbent members can have a 94% re-election rate? Like what system delivers that? Uh, and if you do have a 94% re-election rate by doing exactly what the governor said, which is just placate the base, then where does that leave the next generation who's been waiting for some kind of intelligent policy approach hmm. to these problems that are getting hmm. worse and worse? Yeah, that's very well said. Zachary? Um, so you two are see a solution to this to this problem in in a third party or at least in a third political path. And I guess my question is, where is the place for a third party in American democracy? What is the role of a third party? I think a lot of our listeners will probably immediately have a guttural reaction to that and see third parties as maybe we've been trained to since 2000 as spoilers or as as parties that, that 
that, that play a harmful role in our democracy. What is the place for a third party in, in our society? Well, I, I want to tackle this for a, a little bit because um, the goal of the forward party, and I think any reform effort, should be to reconnect people and what we want to our elected leaders. And the way to do that, in my view, is through a combination of nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting. Now, if you agree that that's the set of reforms you need, you have a very limited set of choices. You can say, hey, I will try and do it within the two-party system, which would be an immediate loser because one side would regard you as a blue or red plot. You'd be excluding half the country. And then even the party you're trying to operate within would say, why are we going to relinquish our super tight control of our turf when the other side doesn't have to, to do the same? So you're then left with an independent political effort outside of the two-party system that's trying to change the incentives so that the fiction we're being fed, which is that our leaders have to answer to 51% of us, that's not what ha actually is happening. What they're answering to is, as the governor said, the 10 to 12% of most extreme voters. So to reestablish that connection, you have to be outside the two-party system. And the conditioning around a third party is very, very clear, but it's off base based upon what we are actually doing, because all of that conditioning is centered on a presidential race. If the shorthand is Ralph Nader, Jill Stein, Ross Perot, and what we're doing is the opposite, and that we're tackling the 43% of Texas races and the up to 70% of races in the US where there's not any contest or competition because one party or the other has that district or position locked down. Democrats are not running around to rural areas and red states saying, hey, we're going to run someone. They do not care because that has nothing to do with whether they control their turf. The state and the country have been divvied up into blue and red zones. And so if you say we are the pro-dynamism, pro-competition, independent political effort, we're going to introduce candidates in places where there is no competition, that's actually a pure good. And the press narrative or the conditioning that we've received isn't accurate, but it's really used just as a punitive bludgeon. It's saying, hey, you're not happy with what's going on right now. Well, tough luck, because if you try and do something outside the system, nader or whatever the heck, right, like, like right, that, that's right. a shorthand. So uh, it, it's knee jerk. It's inaccurate. As you can tell, I'm a little bit annoyed <laughs> um, be, because people who imagine themselves to be smart and educated actually slump into that conditioning because that's what they're being told by their press narrative. The other thing is the, the beauty of what we're talking about and what makes it different from what we've seen in the past is the emphasis on open primaries and ranked choice voting. And what that essentially means is that you walk into your polling place and you can vote if there are five candidates for governor. You say, okay, I really like this person. That's the one I want to see. And then, well, if he can't or she can't make it, then this one is the one I'd like. And you go down the ballot and you list them in order of preference. And it differs from state to state whether they take the top two, top three, top five. But what happens is when the votes are counted, if no one has gotten to 51.1 percent, the bottom person with the least number of votes is knocked off and their second place choices of their voters get allocated up the ballot. Right. And so it keeps going and it's an instant runoff system. And it keeps going until you have someone that has 50.1%. So what it does is it's not a spoiler effect because as Andrew said, we are concentrating on those offices closest to the people that make the decisions that most immediately affect your daily life. I mean, mm -hmm. the, here in Texas, the sheriff. 
uh, the school board, the library commission, your mayor, and council. And in many of those, there's no contest, so there's nothing to lose there. And in others, it's what you've done is you've opened it up so that everyone's vote counts. So if you're a Democrat in a very Republican district, your vote still is going to matter. And the change it also makes in the tenor of campaigns is that everyone wants to be liked because you want to be at least number two on everybody's ballot. So you don't go out and have these nasty ads that are saying the other person's a real jerk and look at me, I'm wonderful. Because (laughs) most people say, okay, I don't like either of this. I don't trust you at all. So it's it's a different way of approaching it that is not going to be... It's certainly not going to be a spoiler in races where you don't have any competition because there's never been that opportunity. Right. And right. even where you have some competition and, oh, by the way, Ford will support a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent if they agree with our principles. And those principles are respect the rule of law, uphold the Constitution, be willing to work across the aisle, and be willing to work to change the way we mm-hmm. elect our, our uh, candidates, mm-hmm. and that's open primaries and ranked choice voting. So one place where I think we've had a natural experiment of this is New York City, right? There was ranked choice voting in New York City. Uh, were you satisfied with the results? Did it well, did it show what you wanted to see? Well, I, I want to be very clear that the ranked choice voting that was used in New York City was within the Democratic Party primary. Right, right fair. So you had 900,000 people vote in that primary. Might sound like a lot, but the city has 9.1 million people. So you had about 10% of people participate in the Democratic primary, the winner might have gotten three and a half percent. And you need to have registered as a Democrat in February for a June primary. So you're still talking about essentially a closed system that was dominated by insiders uh, and folks who are very, very heavily invested (laughs) in in the win. Now, was ranked choice voting within that primary uh, an improvement over a traditional plurality voting system? Yes, it was. But there is even now an effort in New York City called Final Five NYC that is trying to say, look, have all New Yorkers participate in an all-party primary and have the final five candidates of any party get through and be decided via ranked choice voting. That would be a real change. And that's exactly the kind of thing that might make it so that New Yorkers felt a difference in the policies. I guess one of the issues that we have to discuss is where to put the emphasis. I think that the case for ranked choice voting is very strong. People are concerned, of course, that it's complicated. But as I've heard both of you say, we shouldn't assume people are you dumb. Can't, people. They, they, aren't a, they are not able to do one, two, three. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I have a 10-year-old who can rank their ice cream flavors one, right. two, three. You know, right. So saying the average American adult can't well, do it. My and people do this online all the time for various other right. things, right? Exactly. Bidding on eBay and things of that sort, mm-hmm. right? But um, it does. there is the question in, in politics always, what do you emphasize, right? Um, and putting the emphasis on that doesn't mean you're against uh, addressing voter suppression. But some would say that voter suppression is more the issue than uh, the way we vote. It's who does not get to vote. Yeah, it depends so much on the state where that's a major issue. And that's where forward again is different because the National Party is not going to have a platform per se that says this is how you have to believe on issues like that or, or climate change or anything. They're going to say the principles that we had and they're going to we're probably going to also say and we have that it's important to look at how we how we redistrict and put out some examples of where we've seen the new three commissions, the nonpartisan commissions work 
But it's up to the state to decide what works for them. And then it's up, for the, up to the state to pick the issues of importance to that state. Because then you get candidates who are talking to their public, to their mm -hmm. constituents very directly. And they're going to pay more attention to those issues that are of, of immediate importance. And that's one of the things that's, that's really important. People feel uh, part of the, the anger that Donald Trump tapped into was the frustration and anger of people, particularly in middle America, who felt nobody was listening to them. Congress was dysfunctional. They weren't getting heard. Their issues weren't being addressed. And they were mad. I don't blame them. I mean, mm -hmm. I think we were all mad. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I want to be clear that <laughs> most of our votes are getting suppressed all the time. I mean, you're talking about a country where 75% of us live under one party rule, including the folks in Texas, which Absolutely. means that mm -hmm. the vast majority of people are looking up saying, wait a minute, I have no meaningful say right. in what the heck is, is happening in my country. Um, so that's the voter suppression we should be frustrated by the most, in, including the fact that in a lot of places, independents can't vote. And, and you can't uh, have a system where almost half of Americans uh, feel like, okay, somehow my tax dollars are paying for these party processes and I'm not even allowed to vote in the primary that's going to determine everything and then say, well, that's fair, that's truly democratic. Mm -hmm. You know, historically, uh, in our the ways in which reform has occurred has been within the parties. Uh, you're doing something that is, in a way, uh, not unprecedented in its historical effort. But the truth is, if you think of the great party reformers, the great reformers in our politics, the William Jennings Bryans, the Theodore Roosevelt's, the Franklin Roosevelt's, uh, to some extent the Ronald Reagan's, uh, they worked within a party. It was Reagan challenging Ford, right? It was TR taking on Taft. Um, why, why do you why, think— Why are you excluding Abraham Lincoln? Well, okay. Let's talk about that. Well, he's, he's one of our favorite figures to talk mm -hmm. about. I would think so. Yeah, I uh -huh. so. So, <laughs> so how do you see your, what you're doing is following in that model? Well, people say, oh, third party uh, can't happen. But then you think about the Republican Party right. uh, in 1860, which itself was the third party. I mean, it, it came really out of nowhere in a very short period of time. Most people don't realize that Lincoln won the presidency with something like 39 percent of the vote right. uh, in a four party or four candidate race. Mm -hmm. uh, we all think about Lincoln as one of our greatest leaders. This country is actually overdue for a political realignment. Uh, you know, there, there are record levels of Americans who say they're independents, record levels of Americans who say there should be a new political alternative. Uh, I'm a numbers guy. Young people in particular don't like either of the parties very much. It's something like 65 to 70 percent don't identify with either one of them. So if you had to think about all of the changes we're undergoing as a society and as a country and say, but no, this creaky, cranky, 160-year-old political system that none of us likes, like that's going to stand the test of time. Like yeah. we're, we're going yeah. to look back 50 years and be like, oh yeah, this system, it's still clicking. I mean, it's not clicking now. And by the way, it's uniquely subject to authoritarianism. Right. We have a system where if you have one of the major parties that come to terrible leadership, the incentives are for everyone to fall in line. And that can lead to unthinkable things in the US uh, where we're serving it up uh, on a silver platter. And there are people who are who are Democrats, who say, look, our plan is to defeat the other side for all time. And I'm going to say that plan is dumb. Like that that will not work. You're talking about a two-party system where you naturally kind of see the pendulum swing and trade power to the other side every one to two cycles. 
uh, a country where something like 85% of us think we're going in the wrong direction, but we're going to keep one party in power forever? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So we owe it to the next generation to make it so we have a system that's genuinely representative, genuinely resilient. And if we fail in this, we are going to wind up in something very, very dark and dystopian uh, in a relatively short time frame. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to turn to Zachary's question, but I, I want to just um, build on what you said to point out that the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln replaced the Whig Party. Right. So we really didn't have a three-party system. We had the Whig no, Party become... No, but it was become, an upstart. When it, oh, of, when of course. When ran, it was a third party, basically. It um, was an insurgency within the insur- Whig Party. Yeah. It was not... that There were very few Democrats who became Republicans at that time. It was Whigs, it was former Whigs right. who became Republicans, or those who were not in and, either party. And, mm-hmm. and then the, the Whigs kind of fragmented. Right, there was right. like the know-nothings. Um, so could you see a realignment? And I think the governor is a very powerful emblem. I mean, we talked to folks who are joining Ford, and by the way, Ford grows all the time, uh, who were lifelong Republicans and said, you know what, like this is not the party that I joined, right. and uh, you know I'm looking for a new home. And they've found forward. There are folks who are lifelong Democrats uh, who look up and say, wait a minute, this system is not actually going to deliver on any of the solutions and policies that I want. And I also don't want to hate my neighbors and it's tearing my family apart and the rest of it. Um, So I'm going to join forward. Uh, And there is something of a zero-sum game in the sense that, you know, if people join forward, they're probably leaving another party. Um, But that doesn't mean that somehow it's not a realignment. I mean, it very much is. Certainly, Zachary. Um, I want to bring it back just a second to the to the metaphor to to eighteen sixty, because with all due respect, the, the the Republican Party in eighteen sixty had an ideology; it had a platform. How do you think you can galvanize a third party, galvanize grassroots political activism, without one unifying cause or ideology or or, or platform. Oh, we, we do have yeah, a unifying have cause. The unifying cause is to make the system, open the system up so it's responsive to everybody, but that state parties will have platforms. It's just that you don't want somebody from Washington telling you in Texas what you have to care about and how you have to think about it. And I have used this a lot of times after my reelection as governor. I was asked to run for the Senate, and when I not wanting to, but went down and met with the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, I was told in no uncertain terms, and this was back, we're talking 1997, um, if you so much as mention campaign finance reform, you won't get a penny from us and no support. That's the kind of control that the parties have today. They force their members to address issues that are picked from the top They force them to vote a certain way and to talk about issues a certain way. You've seen many, Andrew uses the example all the time of somebody that you'll meet one-on-one and talk to them and they're very reasonable and then all of a sudden they get to Congress and you say, who the heck is this? Or you put a TV camera on them, you get them on a cable news segment, they seem like crazy town. And they're just gone and you want to know what on earth has happened. And and so, but I do want to dig into this because the, the governor is right. We have a very clear mission, a very clear ideology and our energy is look. Let's make American democracy work again. We are one country. Uh, We love each other. We will not be turned against each other. In a way, we're trying to build a tribe of the folks who are turned off by the tribalism. Now, if that doesn't sound like something that might, you know, animate 51% of Americans, that's fine. Because in a polarized system, you don't need 51% to change everything and fix everything. What percent do you need? 
10, 12, 15%. If we get 15% of Americans excited about this vision, which is look, stop the hate. Let's actually sit down, treat each other like human beings, work out the problems and turn off the machines that are benefiting from our hatred and are not solving any of our problems and are causing our communities to degrade uh, and families to turn against each other. Like then we win. That's the magic. Because if you had 15 state legislators here in Texas, that could be all you need to get some of these things done. If, If you had Two U.S. senators, that might change a lot of national politics because each side couldn't just bludgeon the other and say, see, their fault, their fault. It's like, well, you actually have to work with someone to get something done. Um, So then you can lower the temperature. In an ideal world, actually get rid of party primaries, install ranked choice voting and and nonpartisan primaries. And then that fictional connection that we're all uh, told exists would become real. And then the reasonable person in person would actually be reasonable when you stick a TV camera in their face. I like mean, th- that is the, the only way out of this. Hoping for a moral person to somehow reform the system from within this multi-billion dollar corrupt system is a waste of time. The only way out of it is to amend the structures. And I just touched the table, which I was told not to do, and I'm sorry if that... It was your point of emphasis. But that's right. (laughs) That's how fired up I am about (laughs) fixing democracy and restoring the connection between people and our elected leaders. And just remember, in the last Congress, the impact that one person, Joe Manchin, had on major pieces of legislation. And that's what bolsters the point that Andrew was making, is you don't have to have everybody. You don't have to have 100%. You don't even need 50%. If you have 10, 12, maybe 20%, you you can really change the world. And, and Zach, and I want to make this appeal really loud and clear to the people listening to this podcast. The people listening to this podcast are the thinkers. You're hyper lucid. You know what I mean? You're trying to take lessons from history and say, we're, we're going to work on these democratic problems. You are the people who have to look up and say, you know what? This tribalism It's not working so well. makes me feel bad. makes me dislike people. I turn on social media and all I do is get saddened. I doom scroll and the rest of it. Like maybe I need to wise up and get smart and realize that you're being manipulated. You're being turned against uh, other folks. You're being told like, look, if you just – you know, like vote, vote harder in a system where your vote doesn't matter. Like that's going to do the trick. Like I'm going to suggest like that. That's not very smart. Yeah. Like wise up. But that's why you listen to this podcast for this, this message. Wise up. Stop being played. That's right. We need you promoting the podcast there, Andrew. That's great. But I guess, I guess to build on Zachary's question, right? I mean, do you really think, are you on this mission because you care about civility or are you on this mission because you care about the issues that you think will be better served by civility? I'm on it because I care about democracy. I mean, that's the bottom line. We are very close to losing our democracy. And that's what I care about. And that means bringing the system back to what our founding fathers, you go back in history, this is what our founding fathers warned us about. Sure. I mean, Washington, Jefferson, they said, Watch out for parties because they will start to become more important <laughs> than, solving, than, than solving the problems. Um, and well, Franklin said, when asked what kind of a government they'd given us, he said, uh, a republic, if, if you, you can, can keep, keep it. it. But you're starting a, a party. I, I guess my question is just I don't understand. It, for, I, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I sure. don't perfectly no, understand good. how a party that is the anti-party can work, can govern, or can play a role in governance. Um, so I, I want to uh, answer uh, Jeremy's question about, um, hey, are you about the issues? 
Um, so I ran for president because I was concerned about automation, AI, poverty. Um, one of the big supporters of the democracy reform space was concerned about climate change. And then she concluded, you know what? We're never going to get make headway on climate change unless we reform our democratic structures. You know who made the same conclusion? Al Gore. Uh, remember Marco Rubio championing immigration reform a number of years ago and then recanting a week later? Why did he do that? Because the Republicans uh, he worked with went to him and said, Marco, what are you doing? We do something on immigration. We're all going to take a beating. We do nothing. We, we all win. We can still raise money, get votes, get people angry. So you can just name your issue and put it in there and say, you know why I'm for forward is because I care about that issue. Again, we have to wise up and say, look, the Democrats say I'm for this, I'm for that. Like they are unable to deliver on a lot of the things that they say they're for because the system will not reward them for actually doing the thing. Um, and, you know, the system will just reward them for like arguing, oh, we could only do the thing if we had the votes and just vote harder and then we'll do the thing. They will not do the thing. Now, you can decide for yourself uh, what the best path to, is to resolving those issues. And there are different people who can have different thoughts about wh what they care about. But the, the point is that none of us are going to get anything we care about done within the system unless what you want is for us to hate each other. Then you'll get that. But if you want any kind of positive resolution on any of the issues of the day, this is the path. This is the only path that will lead there. Well, to your question, too, about how a party, how can we be anti-party and creating a party, it's a recognition that we're tribal people. And you've got to give people something around which to gather. And so parties may be not the answer, except that they're kind of the only answer, because even back, <laughs> yeah, back right. in that, the day, is like Whig that. and Tory. Uh, I mean, even though they didn't like parties, they knew they were going to be there. Their fear was not, uh, their, their hope was not to let parties trump policy. We're at a place now where the, the policy is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. In fact, they don't want to solve the problems because they use them to excite their base. Both mm -hmm. sides do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and real people are getting hurt. Uh, right. It was either in 2021, uh, 2001 or 2002, I can't remember which year, that the Bush administration, George W., we sent up a, a bill on immigration that was a really balanced bill right. on how to address this issue. It never even got a hearing. Neither side wants to solve the problem because it is such a red meat problem for their uh, for their base. Sure. And look at what's happening to families being torn apart. Absolutely. It's just tragic. Absolutely. And the hatred that's now building up around it because they're using that as they're all, you know, watch out. Immigrants are all rapists and murderers or drug traffickers. Right. And, and and it's just snow, snowballing out of control, and we have to get it back. And the way to get it back is to get reasonable people to have the opportunity to be heard in an election. And to and the practical side of it is you have to be a party to get on the ballot. So you, if you're going to offer these changes and these opportunities, you have to have a party, which is what we're trying to do in Texas by gathering 82,000 signatures that are needed on the ballot to become a recognized party. The first part is done. We're a sort of a party, a quasi-party, <laughs> but to get to be a recognized party so we can run candidates on the forward right. ballot. Or as you say, uh, we'll take Republicans, Democrats, independents, and that's happening in other states. Right. We right. have existing office holders who have switched. 
in right. Miami, a mayor who who became because we're on the ballot in in Florida, who became a well not in Miami he was in Florida, um, who became forward. He just mm-hmm. left the party. We had mm-hmm. four state senators in uh, Arizona who said, "I'm a forward Democrat." Right. They still caucus with the Democrats, but they are working to change the system. Right. So so as I understand these really thoughtful and insightful answers, you're not anti-party. You don't like the way the two parties operate today. But like Jefferson, mm-hmm. who was skeptical of parties, he, you, it almost sounded right. like you were quoting him, skeptical of parties, but then built the first party. Right. You're saying that parties in this large country, this large pluralistic country, we need organizing ways of bringing people together. What then is to prevent your party, let's say you succeed gloriously, What's to prevent your party from responding to the same incentives as the other two parties and becoming I, the same thing? I, I cannot wait until the, the corporate interests decide to try and uh, buy us um, the, the way they, they frankly bought the other two parties because that means that we would have won. <laughs> you, you, you well, know, you'll you know win, I mean? but then you'll become and, the same and, thing. And, and then if we've successfully implemented nonpartisan primaries, ranked choice voting, independent redistricting commissions, get money out of politics by overturning Citizens United. I'm going to say something some people might disagree with uh, in, in the party term limits. If we do all these things and, and like install an anti-corruption platform and then the corporates come and say, hey, guys, like let, let's buy you off, then we'll be, you know, that then hopefully we will have actually done a good enough job making it so that leaders have to respond to voters that will be able to resist that. But one of the, the things I'm going to suggest is that right now we all know that the fix is in uh, and uh, people are getting more and more restive and frustrated and they're being presented terrible leadership, terrible arguments, being told, you know why you're so angry because of those people over there. Uh, and they're going to take that. Um, so we, we have a very limited number of ways out of this mess. And I'm not going to say it's, it's going to be easy, um, but it is the only path. You know, it's like you look up and you say, you, you say like, you, I mean, is the answer going to come from within this dysfunctional system or is there going to be a popular movement that comes up and says, let's make it work for us again? Zachary, what do you think? I think it's a very compelling message. Um, I wonder, though, how you think that uh, or why do you think that there isn't a path um, for systemic change uh, working within the party system? I understand that there are all of these barriers, but I also think that what you've presented is a compelling political message, which I think a lot of voters in either of the two parties could see themselves um when it comes to the systemic issues agreeing on, but then completely disagreeing when it comes to the uh, hard work of, of, of policymaking. How, why do you think that those systemic issues do not have a place um, within one of the two parties today? Well, Zachary, let me tell you, after I left the Bush administration, I wrote a book in 2005 called It's My Party Too. And I had started before that uh, the Republican Leadership Council, a number of different efforts to try to change the party from within. And in the book, the last chapter is a chime for radical moderates because I was so concerned about how far to the right that the conservatives have taken us. I've been working on within the party for years, decades, and it just, it's so blatantly apparent that the system works too well for them to ever, ever break it. They just, 
there's no there's no incentive for it. They've got things exactly the way they want it now. They've got the seats they want. Maybe every once Who's in a they? while, Who's they? the party operatives, the people who are at the top of the parties of both parties, and there's no incentive for a member of those parties to buck them because they they won't get the kind of support they need to stay in power. And it, now it's it's about power. It's about holding that title. And as my husband used to say, a lot of them could never get jobs that pay as well on the outside. Um, you know, they just haven't done enough. <laughs> well, I, I want to quote Ezra Klein, who said, toxic systems compromise good individuals with ease. You know? uh, and, and so if we imagine, Zach, if I could just get one moral, reasonable person into this office, then our issues will be resolved. It's a fantasy. That person's going to get in there. They're going to be like a fly trapped in amber. Uh, and then we're going to turn on them too right. in one or two cycles. Um, and that's the message of Ezra's book, Why We're Polarized. I took it very much to heart because he's right. And more and more Americans are waking up to that reality. If this is a dispiriting reality, let, let it be an encouraging path that we have identified a genuine path forward if enough of us raise our hands and say, look, I get it. We're being played. I refuse to be played anymore. The only game I will play is reforming our election system to see to it that every vote counts by having nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting. And I would challenge folks to go to representatives in either party and say, hey, guys, what do you think about nonpartisan yeah. primaries and ranked choice yeah. voting? And if someone's for that, then all of a sudden we are pumped. Because if you had the same humans in office but their incentives were all of a sudden aligned with our people – then mm. the reason for everything me and the governor is doing like diminishes very, very significantly. Because, you know, the fantasy would become real. Yeah. This fantasy that they have to listen to 51% of us would actually be the reality. You, you know, one of the things I find so impressive and compelling about what you're doing is just what you articulated. You're making the case for reform. Mm -hmm. And the historian in me says every generation confronts this in a different way. Systems run beyond the reality they were built to serve. Right? It's what we call path dependence, right? So a system, the New Deal was created to serve the problems of the Great Depression and then outlasted the Great Depression, right? Our national security state was built to serve the problems of the Cold War and far outlasted that, right? And so every generation has to find its voice and find its avenue to reform. And I think you're doing such a powerful and compelling job, an articulate job, of not only identifying the problem, in a sense that's the easy part, but showing that there are pathways forward and that in the great Franklin Roosevelt tradition, he's in many ways our patron saint for the podcast, right? We have to experiment. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we have to experiment. So we always like to close. Uh, I just want to uh, share. Michelle, uh, I'm Teddy Roosevelt's great granddaughter's godfather. Um, anyway, random fact. That's what. what <laughs> I, I, okay. I was I was afraid you were going to say you're Teddy that you're channeling Teddy Roosevelt that he's come through you. I thought that every now and then. I thought. No, I would no, hope so. I'd love that. that. Wouldn't I that be know, wonderful? That would be great. So so we always like to close uh, by trying to show how this learned discussion that we're fortunate to have each week, and this has been one of our best discussions, how it can be something useful for listeners that they can do something. Uh, so what is, your, what is your action point? And I know you're going to say get involved with the forward party, which is great. But, but beyond that, what is, it that, what is it that listeners should do now? Um, try to recognize the tribalism in action when you're subject to it, which you're going to notice is all the time. Uh, you have social media companies and, me and media networks that profit to the tune of billions of dollars off of the polarization. Realize that it's not doing anything good for you. It's not doing anything good for the country for you to be upset. Extricate yourself from that system. 
And then go to forwardparty.com, click on your state and get involved because we need you. We need young people. I'm assuming it's young people listening to this, whatever. We need young people to step up and say, I get it, enough is enough, and I want a democracy that lives up to its name. I want people to take away from this that there is a path forward and there is hope. Uh, But it's going to take all of us. We can't sit back and assume somebody else will do it. And that's what we've done for too long. And around many issues, I know, where the people who want to see change argue with themselves or their spouse or their car radio, but they don't (laughs) get in touch with the people who are making the decisions. And what we have to do now is take ensure that the people who are making the decisions are listening to their constituents right. rather right. than than to the parties. And it is go to forwardparty.com. Yeah. Yeah. And it, if you've heard anything on this podcast that you like about it, if it interests you, talk to others because yeah. everyone who's listening to this is an influencer. Right. And they have people who they know, who know them, who respect them. And the old adage, all politics is local, is very true. Yeah. And if people hear about something like forward from someone they respect and know, they'll say, oh, okay. Yeah. And when they start to realize, as Andrew says, that we've been being had for quite a while now, <laughs> um, they're going to say, I'm f- sick of yeah. it and I'm really happy to Turn know the that light there's on. something yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and you all are living this. I mean, you, you're doing this. You don't have to do this. And you're you're no. doing this yourself. You're 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 living this. Zachary, does does this turn the light on for you? We're going to give you the last word. I think it's very compelling, and 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 I I am certainly more convinced than I was when I when I began this conversation with you all. But I do wonder um, also, and and this maybe is a question, which is not not where I'm supposed to go with this. But is there also a space? I think. Or a reality, at least, that 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 system that our system is always going to be imperfect. That we work within an imperfect system, and that while we might feel the need for reform acutely and work towards reform, that there is also a very important place in our democracy for people who are trying to make real policy now. And how do we prevent this from becoming a, a discussion that takes away? From where the real policy making has to be done. Today, you mean like the person you issues. work for, like you work for yeah. right now, a member of, of the G- German parliament, but nonetheless, yeah. right. uh, on, know, on urgent I, issues that can't wait five years for us to reform I, the system. I, I would definitely say they're they're all perfectly valid, and the governor and I are friends with people who are in positions who are trying to do great things every day, and they're still our friends, and we love them. <laughs> uh, and you know, and simultaneously, we we can work uh, on. Um, solving some of our root problems. But Zach, you said, hey, can we accept, uh, I mean, I would happily accept imperfect. Uh, I would accept uh, functional. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I'm not looking for perfection here. I'm just looking for something that'll survive <laughs> the next number of years. You want the engine yeah, we, to work a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, most people, the majority of people who go into public service really want to make a difference. They just get subsumed by the system. And what we need to do is have their backs. And we can do that now. Uh, before we have forward party candidates, we can still say to the ones that are trying to make a difference, we're there for you. Uh, but you might want to consider to put forward by, in your name. But you can stay a Democrat. You can stay sure, a Republican. Sure. But you just need to understand that this is what the public wants. It's what you really wanted when you first came in. Because if you talk to a lot of those who are incumbents, they'll sit, they're frustrated too. Sure. But they don't dare speak out because of the consequences. Sure. And as the conundrum for politicians is always, um, 
I want to make a difference, but I can't make a difference if I lose my job because then right. I'm out. I'm not in that right. position of power. But if I speak out on the issues that I want to, that's what's going to sure. happen to me. Sure. So what is the right way to do it? And we're trying to provide that kind of cover and that ability. And, and yes, you know what? You're right, Zachary. It's going to be imperfect. We're, we're humans. Humans are imperfect. Our democracy is imperfect. Our country is a wonderful country. I love it to death, but it hasn't always been pretty, our, our history. Uh, we've done some pretty uncomfortable things if we look at our history of the way course. we should. But that doesn't lessen my love for it or, or my support of our democracy. I, I think this conversation has really brought out not only the urgency of the issue and the, the thoughtful ways in which we can move forward beyond the simple yelling at our car radios. <laughs> I love that image. Uh, but it's also brought out how important uh, history is for this, how empowering history is. Because what we can see, and this is the theme of our podcast, of course, every week, is that uh, we're in a difficult moment. And we've been in difficult moments before as a society. And in those moments, reformers have stepped up and pushed on the institutions to change them. We've talked a lot about the founders here. One of the central principles of our system is that our constitution, our structure has enduring values, but ever-changing forms, ever-changing forms. Our founders could never imagine the country. They could never imagine us being Americans today, those right. of us sitting around this table doing this podcast. Our system is always evolving, and it takes reformers to push and pull. And uh, I, I am uh, so grateful for the work that you're doing, uh, Governor Whitman and Andrew Yang, and for joining us and for sharing this uh, with our audience. I hope all of our listeners will think about these issues more deeply as a consequence. Thank you for the opportunity. Our, our pleasure. Thank you also, uh, Zachary, for your uh, inspiring poem as well. Uh, this was one of your best, I think. Uh, and every week you do you outdo yourself from the week before. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.